The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So Peter wrote first the, the book of 1 Peter. This is Peter who was uh, one of the 12 original disciples with Jesus. He was one of the three who were closest to Jesus. He's the one who denied him three times whenever all the chips were down uh, leading up to what we celebrate as Easter, leading up to it, uh, Black Friday, uh, Black Friday, on uh, Good Friday. That's an American holiday. I just confused those. I apologize. And now Peter is writing this book of First Peter to uh, the churches who are in modern-day Turkey. That's Asia Minor. Uh, and he's writing to people who are suffering. These are churches, these are believers that are suffering be- mostly because they simply are believers. They're, they're part of a culture where they are considered Outsiders. See, the, the Greco-Roman culture was a, uh, a polytheist culture. That was that the, the people, the culture, worshipped many gods. And it's, in, in a lot of ways, it's not too far dissimilar to what we live in today as a culture. It was, that, it was an acceptance, hey, you worship your God and I worship my God, you worship your God over there, and we'll just celebrate the fact that we're a polytheistic culture and we all have our, our own little thing, our own little thing that we worship, our own little thing that we do, as long as you don't infringe upon me and I don't infringe upon you. But the Christians were considered outsiders because their Jesus, the Jesus, the God that they worshiped, he claimed that there was only one God and there was only one way to God and that was through him. He claimed, it was what they claimed as Christians, that we by nature and by choice are separated from this God who made us through one and only true creator God. And that gulf can only be bridged by a sacrifice that Jesus provided by his death on the cross. And we can only live and be united to God through his resurrection life that he, well, we're going to celebrate three weeks from now on Easter, that he rose again. So, so think about this. You have a, a, a culture, a polytheistic culture, where you have Christians who claim, hey, there was this peasant Jew who claimed he was God, he was killed, and then he rose again, and now you can't see him, he's seated at the right hand of God, but he's the only way to the Father. And that made, those radical and kind of outlandish claims made Christians outsiders in the society that they lived in. They were considered, actually Christians were considered barbaric, and Christians were considered closed-minded. That kind of sounds kind of similar to uh, our society that we live in today, isn't it? Uh, the, the Christian's submission to Jesus as their Lord made them radically different than the rest of their culture. Their claims about Jesus' lordship and their claims about Jesus as being the only way to God, the only way to to true and eternal life, uh, to assuage our guilt before God, repelled the people around them. It really repelled the society that was around them. And now these Christians who are in Asia Minor are suffering because of that. Now Peter's writing to encourage them. And the way that he encourages them is by reminding them. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry, it's going to get better, uh, it's going to pass, every cloud has a silver lining. He reminds them about who they are and where they've come from. He reminds them, these believers who are suffering, of the bigger picture that is going on. He reminds them, he says, listen, you are suffering and it is hard and it is wrong, but you've been called by God the Father and you've been born again to a living hope through Jesus. You are now co-heirs with Jesus and if so, it shouldn't be a shock if society around you 
is repelled by you, society around you ostracizes you, and the society around you makes you an outsider because that, you're just following the example of your Lord Jesus who is considered the same. He was rejected and reviled by men. Even his own, his own people, the Jews themselves and the Romans, they both rejected him. And Peter urges them to press on, not because things are going to get better. He urges them to press on because what was going on is bigger than their circumstances. It's bigger than their present suffering. Because you see, the way you view yourself, where you came from, and what your purpose is will determine how you view life. The way you view who you are, where you come from, and what your purpose is in life will determine how you live your life. Just like the believers to whom Peter was writing this letter, how we view who we are, where we come from, and what our purpose is will drive how we live our life. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what the church was, or what believers were, what the church was, what the church is, and why the church is. And I know that's not right grammar, so just grammar nerds, just look over it and let's just roll together and have fun this morning, all right? What the church was, what the church is, and why the church is. All right, first up, what the church was. So, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying this morning is how you view who you are, where you came from, and what your purpose is will determine how you live your life. Uh, my family, uh, my, extended, my, my mom and sisters, and uh, if you know anything about our family, you know, like, uh, like I would say they are pretty big Disney nerds. Like, they're, like, they're, like they love to go to Disney World, and I've been there, I, I couldn't tell you how many times I've been there. Uh, this big Disney World family. I remember the first time I went, I was 10 years old, and you go to the Magic Kingdom, and you're like, man, it's just like, you know, it's just like you see on TV. It's like amazing, and pretty, particularly a kid from the country and didn't have much money in South Carolina. You go to, like, you're like, man, this is amazing. But what I, then what I remember is then you go to Epcot. And at that time, it was called Epcot Center, like all capital letters, Epcot Center. And it was like this, like this futuristic or retro futuristic vision of what the future was going to be like and you're it's like educational so mom was like happy that we were there and like is it like it's a kind of a weird kind of place though in terms of like theme parks right like magic kingdom you have like the castle and you have fantasy land and adventure land and epcot is like hey we're going to be like a world's fair and we would go and you would learn about like energy and you would you know do these educational things and then in back you go through all these different countries it was a different kind of place. And the story of how it came to be was Walt Disney in the 60s, uh, they were going to expand and uh, start another Disney park. Disneyland was like going like gangbusters. And so they're going to start another Disney park. They're going to do it on the East Coast. They picked Florida, like 1964, 65-ish. And they start buying a plan. And, and, and they're going to put another Disneyland or Magic Kingdom, what they call the Magic Kingdom there. But they're also going to put this place called Epcot. And, and Walt Disney's vision of what Epcot would be is different than what it is today. It used to be an acronym, E-P-C-O-T, and it stood for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Very catchy, huh? Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. And the, the picture that he had is Epcot was going to be this city where people lived. 
and you're going to have businesses and all these corporations were going to come in and people were going to come live there and they were going to invest into making this Epcot into like the, the future of what civilization or cities could be. It was going to have futuristic uh, transportation, that's where the monorail came from, and people are going to live there and work there. It's going to be pioneering, like, all kinds of technology. It was going to show you, like, this utopian picture of what society could be if we did everything that we could to have, like, this perfect live, work, technology place together. And Walt died in 1966, and the rest of, like, Disney people looked, looked at each other and said, you guys understand what's going on here? Like, how, how are we going to have a city because what, because what, what, what Walt really wanted was he wanted the Magic Kingdom to finance to have this city. That was what he was really excited about in this project they called the, the Florida Project. And so all these Disney uh, executives looked at each other and like, do you guys really want to do a city? And they're like, no, I don't understand what's going on here. And so they said, well, what if we did something like a World's Fair and made it kind of like what Walt pictured and had a monorail and... They'll have, they'll have a lot of fun. And so Epcot became a place where you can go and ride rides and uh, watch shows and eat churros instead of being what, what Walt pictured as an experimental prototype community of tomorrow. It's, see, what oftentimes happens is that you have a visionary leader who pictures what his organization can be and will be, but whenever he's sort of removed from the picture all of a sudden, and I'm not saying Epcot's not a great place, I love Epcot, but all of a sudden, things start to stray from what the visionary leader intended it to be. And what I'm saying is, that's oftentimes like what we see in the church. Like Jesus' picture of what the church is, because of what it was and what it is and what he intends it to be, is a vastly different picture than what we often consider church to be. Uh, we often, in our society, vision, envision church to be something that I consume. So I see all these other options. If I'm interested in church, if I'm a Christian, or if I'm just considering the whole thing, or I want to bring my family somewhere on Sunday because I like to wake the kids up early and you know, have everybody fight as we get them dressed and try to cram a breakfast down their throats on a day that's not a school day and run into a place and, and suddenly smile like everything's good as I pack them off to a room and I come sit down and breathe a sigh of relief and hear somebody talk and somebody sing for an hour or so and then we leave and go get some food. And so what, whatever, like, and so what you do is like, whether you're Christian or not, and you're looking for that kind of place, you say, what's the place that most appeals to me when it comes to that? Now, do they offer, uh, what, are the, what are the benefits? What are the pluses that this place offers? Well, that's sort of like a Walmart church and this is a Target church and this is sort of like a Bloomingdale's church and you kind of find like, this kind of fits my, my scene or my budget. I feel okay driving my car up here and wearing my clothes in this place. This kind of fits what my children like and what I like. The, the speaker or the music mostly fits what I like and I might put some money into the basket or I might uh, volunteer a certain amount that makes me feel like I've earned a role at this place where I consume this service or these goods that this church offers. So you find what most fits what you're shopping for. That's kind of what, honestly, most of us tend to view church like. It's sort of a something that we consume, a service that we consume. Uh, some of us view church as sort of a, a self-help group. 
So it's sort of like the, the weekly place I go to hear something kind of uplifting and encouraging that'll help me be a better person or help my kids be better kids. Uh, maybe I can learn some parenting tips along the way or uh, some tips to be a more moral person or a better moral person. Uh, some of us view church as the social club that we belong to. Like we really, we like the we like the relationships. And so this is a group of people I like. And so we kind of shop around like, I'm, I'm not this kind of club. It's not this. Okay, this, these are my people. I can plug in here and be around people who I like and like me. And we kind of get the same things. We laugh at the same jokes. We all watch the same shows. And we vacation in this kind of same way. And so we can all kind of get along there together. It's something I consume or a self-help group I belong to or a social club that I belong to. But the way that Jesus views the church is he views the church as a place or a people full of nobodies who have been made somebodies. Jesus views the church and what the church actually is, is a group of nobodies who have been made into somebodies. Look at our text here, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We'll get to get that in a minute. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once, hear this, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So it sort of goes back to this whole story. This, the truth is, all of humanity, all of humanity, for all our whole history, back to Adam and Eve, are people who are actually nobodies, who are secretly afraid they're nobodies, but don't want anybody around them to know that they're afraid they're nobodies, so they act like they're somebodies. Does that make sense? Uh, we are all, every, let's just get personal, every single one of us are people who are deeply afraid that we're nobodies. And we desperately try to prove some way to ourselves and the people around us that we're actually somebodies. And that is an exercise in futility that never ends well. When God chose his people, the Jews, with Moses, and they, he brought them out of Egypt, and he had them in the, in the wilderness, and he's getting ready to give them the Ten Commandments and make this covenant with them that they will be his people, and he will be my God, their God. And he says this in Exodus 19. He said, you yourselves see, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's saying, look, I found you when you were slaves and nobodies in Egypt, the most powerful nation on the earth, and I, I bore you, I freed you, I sprung you out of Egypt on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, that, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak 
to the people of Israel. Another place in, in Deuteronomy, God told his people that he had called out of Egypt and separated and saved out of Egypt, and he was making it to his people. He says, here's the reason that I saved you out of Egypt. I didn't save you and make you mine because you were a great people. I saved you simply because I loved you, and he says, set my love upon you and chose you. See, here's the way, the only way to become somebody in the eyes of the only person who really counts, that's God, is not to prove yourself because you and I can never prove ourselves enough. It is for God to look at you and say, I will bring you to myself. I will set my love upon you and I will choose you out of everyone else simply because I love you and simply because I chose you. The only way to actually become a somebody is to accept the fact that I am actually a nobody on my own and yet God through Christ set his love upon me. You know how you can know he set his love upon you? Is that he sent his son to die on the cross and pay, shed the precious blood of the son of God to pay for your sins, to make you a co-heir with him. That's how you can know that you can actually be a somebody in the eyes of God and be brought to him on eagle's wings all by his strength and by his power and none of yours. There's this pretty uh, crazy story about this prophet Hosea who, man, the story is just absolutely amazing. God calls him to uh, find this, this woman who was a prostitute and make, him, make her his wife. And then they, this, this prostitute actually continually runs away from Hosea to other lovers. And yet God says, I've called you to love this prostitute wife the way I love my people who they continually run away from me, yet I continually draw them back. And at one point, it says in Hosea 1.6, it says, this woman conceived, bore a daughter, and the Lord said to Hosea, call her name, this is kind of a bad name for this daughter, call her name, no mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And then he had a son, and God said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So what he's saying is, hey, my people Israel, they, I call them to myself the way I did through Moses, and yet they continually ran away from me. But now Peter is saying to the people he's writing to in Asia Minor, you were once were not a people, but now God has come, and through Christ, he has made you a people. He's made you his people. He's made you from being a nobody to being a somebody in the eyes of the only person that counts. God views his church as a people who were once nobodies who have been made into somebodies. Do you remember when you were a nobody? Do you, do you remember when, when you were made into a somebody if you were a believer? Do you remember that feeling of, of lostness and hopelessness? Do you remember that feeling when Christ called you to himself and made you into a somebody in his eyes? And all of a sudden you knew that you were loved with an extravagant, never-ending, never-failing love? That's the incredible, lavish love of God for a people who are once not a people. He also views his church as a people who are outsiders who have been made insiders. That's what he means when he calls us a royal priesthood. 
and when he calls us a people for his own possession. The story of Jesus tells us that we were all nobodies and we were outsiders from God. Have you ever had that feeling, like, have you ever had that feeling of being afraid that you're actually an outsider? That everybody around, you ever walked into a room, maybe you're an introvert, maybe you're an extrovert, and nobody around you would know, but you walk into a room and you just have this feeling like, man, everybody's in on this whole like story, of inside story of life, and I'm the only one who's outside. Have you ever felt like that? Here's the truth. Every single human being has felt like that. Every single human being has wrestled with this fear that I'm not on the inside, I'm actually on the outside. But the church, God views his church as people who were once outside of himself, but who've been brought inside. That's what being a royal priesthood and a people for his own possession means. A, a priest is somebody who has been brought inside into God's presence. And if you're a believer, you're somebody who was once outside, who has been brought inside to God. Do you remember when you were an outsider? Do you remember when you were brought to be an insider? See, you can't really appreciate who you are and who the church is until you remember, until you realize who you were and who every single person who was a part of the church was. See, nobody is born a Christian. Like, you could be born very, very white, like me. You could be born a southerner, like me. You could be born uh, a northern. You could be born uh, an Italian. You could be born whatever. But you can, no one is born a Christian. Every single person who's a believer is someone who was once outside, who's been brought inside, is somebody who was once a nobody, who's been made into a somebody through Jesus Christ. The question is, if you're not a believer this morning, maybe you don't know where you stand on this whole thing, maybe you're checking this thing out. My question for you is, for you to kind of think about in your life, is where do you get your, and I'm going to make up some terms here, I've already done it, so I'm just going to keep on doing it, but where do you get your somebodiness? Where do you get your insiderness? Because if you don't get it through Christ, you will be getting it from somewhere or someone else. And that someone or somewhere else not only will always fail you, but it is a prop. It is a poor stand between, between you and the only creator God and the only Lord and the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is your only path. And I encourage you, give up the charade this morning. Bow your knee to the only true Lord and accept his sacrifice on your behalf to bring you from outside, inside, and to make you from being a nobody into a somebody. I pray you would hear God's call to you this morning. That's what the church was, but what is the church? Well, he tells us here, let's look at verse 9 again. But you are, he's talking to the church. He says that but because right before there, uh, he's talking about how uh, he's built us together as the church into this spiritual house, this picture of the uh, temple, again, where the Holy Spirit dwells. He says, but uh, to some people, the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, has become a, a stumbling block for them. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9, but you, but you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 
The first thing he tells us that the church is here is a chosen race. That's a picture of a, he's saying the church is a new family. When it says that he is a chosen race, it's this picture of the, uh, the, a race is, tells you, your race tells you where you come from. It's your bloodline. It's the family of people that you belong to. But here, this is such a beautiful picture. It's the answer to every sectarian issue that we have, not only in America, but across the world. It's the answer to the difference between the color question. It's the answer to the, the uh, gender question. It's the answer to the, uh, the Republican-Democrat question. It's the answer to every single division that we have in our country and beyond because he's saying that you are a chosen race. The church is a chosen race. He's literally calling us a new humanity called out from every single race and every single group. What that means? That means there are black and white. There are American. There are African. There are Republicans and Democrats, Southern and Northern. There are those who like mustard-based barbecue and the rest of us good people who like a vinegar-based barbecue. It, Memphis, I don't know, Tad. He's taking all of us from every sectarian issue that we have from all of them together, and together he's making us into one new humanity. One that does not ignore the differences and divisions that we have, but one that actually unites us in our divisions that we have into one nation. What we picture that we have in Revelation of a people who are before the throne of God from every tribe and language and tongue and nation praising God as God's people. He's literally calling us a new humanity. And the way this happens is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the firstborn among many brothers, is calling us all into one new family. You are a chosen, hear that, a chosen race. You know what? You and I have no choice of what family that we were born into or we belong to. Uh, I did not get the athletic genes. Uh, I did not get any musical or real talent genes. I have very, very small on the list of talents that I have. Uh, very awkward, just kind of a nerdy kind of guy. That's the kind of, that's the kind of stuff that I got. I didn't choose that. I might have chosen differently if I could have. But you might not like the family that you're born into. You didn't, you could not choose it. Frankly, your parents couldn't choose you either. But in Christ, your heavenly Father chose you to be his child. You are a chosen race, a new family chosen by God the Father through the sacrifice of your elder brother. Relationships that once were broken by pride and selfishness. That's what breaks relationships. Pride and selfishness. And relationships that were once, broke, once broken by pride and selfishness are healed in the church. Because what the church should look like is a people who are incredibly humbled because we know I was not, I had nothing going for myself. I was an outsider and a nobody who's been made into an insider and a nobody, not by my work, but by Christ's work on my behalf. So it makes me incredibly humble, and yet it makes, it raises my chin because I can be incredibly proud, not in who I am of myself, but in what he, in who Christ is for me on my behalf. 
So you can have a family of people who aren't, have relationships that aren't severed and broken by pride and selfishness, though we will continually be messing things up, but those relationships can be healed again because we know I can be humble, but yet I can be lifted up all by Christ's work on my behalf. The church is a new race called from every race. The church is a new race that is chosen by God's grace alone, not by bloodline. The church is a chosen race. Look at what it says next. The church is a royal priesthood. You're like, that's an awkward uh, phrase, a royal priesthood. What he's saying there is the church is, the church is a sanctuary. The church is not a place you come to consume. It's not a, actually a place that you go. The church is a sanctuary. The picture of that is in a sanctuary or in a temple, you have priests who represent the people to God and represent God to the people and make sacrifices or do works that showcase or assuage God with the people, assuage people with God, and, and do works that communicate who God is to the people around them. They're, they sort of act as these arbiters of the presence of God. And Christ is the great high priest who made this sacrifice, and he was the sacrifice to make us right with God. He assuaged the wrath of God against us. And now we, being a royal priesthood, the church, being a, a group of people built to be a, a, the temple of God's presence in the community that we live in, we are made to represent God to the people around us and intercede for the people around us to God. That's what the church is called to be. We are not a place where you come to consume something. We are an active, living a temple, an active, living embassy, if you will, of God's presence of heaven on earth. Where what should happen is the people who see us individually and see us together should see and sense and hear God or Jesus in their midst. They should sense the presence of God when we're around individually and particularly when we're around together as a group. We are being built together into a spiritual house to make sacrifices to, to, to for Christ. They should sense his presence around us. They should hear his words when we speak. And we should be arbiters for them. We should be crying out with God for our neighbors and our coworkers and family members that were around. Say, God, would you show out your gospel and your glory and your presence and your beauty to these people around us who do not know you. Jesus is the great high priest, and now he's called us to be a community of royal priests who wholly belong to God, who all of their life is lived for God's purpose and his mission. And here's my question for you this morning, if you're a believer, is that the way you view your life? Do you view your life as being a royal priest whose life wholly belongs to their God and whose purpose in life is to live in such a way that his glory and his goodness and his presence can be seen and heard and felt to the people around you. And do you view church that way? Or is church a self-help club or a social club or something that you come to consume? Or is it a people that you're being deeply built into together as a spiritual house, as a temple for God's presence? Church, Myrtle, the Myrtle Beach area should be different because we exist. 
Your neighborhood should be different because you live there. Your workplace should be different because you work there. The clients and coworkers that you deal with should be different because you are there. If we no longer exist one day as a church, does the community actually feel a loss because something is different, even if they don't know what it is? Do our lives, does the life of our church body, your community groups, us as a church as we gather together, is his presence among us and lived out among us, his mission lived out among us in such a way that people find it, not only that they see it, but they find it compelling was the life of, life of Jesus was compelling. Even for those who did not agree with him, it was incredibly compelling, and it was not ignorable. We want people to have to trip over Jesus to go anywhere other than heaven. We want Jesus to be non-ignorable along the grand strand. Honestly, that's the only reason that I pray that the Lord would give us this building that we're praying for, or any building, is not so that we could have have ease, but so that God would use it as a tool to declare his presence among us. The church should be a sanctuary where people come, not just when we gather together on Sunday mornings, but especially when we gather together on Sunday mornings to see and sense God's presence in our midst. The church is a prototype community. Remember that Epcot experimental prototype community of tomorrow. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The picture there is that even though all of us were once striving under our own self-rule and rebellion against God, now in Christ the church is called to be, a, the word there is a new nation, it's this word, it's this word ethnic, and, and what it, or ethnos, or what, what it really means is a picture of a culture. And what he's saying is, the church is called to be a, a new family, a sanctuary, and a prototype community that showcases what life looks like under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That means you and I individually, and us together as a community, are the way that we view our career, the way that we view neighboring, the way that we view being a family member, the way that we view our finances, should all look like what should exhibit what those things look like under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ as King and Lord. And that when people come into our midst, they should see a community that lives in relationships and views all of life differently than everyone else around us. See, Christians sometimes view ourselves as one of two ways. We either are so afraid of being too different from the culture around us that we, there's no difference between us and everybody else, or we feel like afraid of the culture around us and we want to hide in some bunker away and just wait for Jesus to return. But the picture that God has for his church is to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. It is this picture of us living in the middle of the darkness that surrounds us, like a city that's on a hill. We're a different kind of life, a prototype of what it looks like when Jesus lives on earth. When Jesus is a a banker or a teacher or a nurse, when Jesus is a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a neighbor. There should be a picture of the Jesus community that is strikingly counter-culture. 
not necessarily always anti-culture, but definitely not just blending in with the culture, but runs counter to the way our culture runs. That's a picture in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, when he talks about us being a new creation, and it describes us as ambassadors of Christ. Our lives, our church, should look like a life that is a new creation and as a people who are ambassadors of Christ. We need to remember what the church was, what the church is, and lastly, why the church is. And we've been seeing this is what we've been looking at all along. Look at the last half of verse 9. That, so you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that, here's why, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The point is that the life of the church should look like the excellencies of God on display. Think about that. That's weightier and bigger than finding a group of people that I like or a place I can find help, self-help, or the best service that I could find that matches me, match me. It is a people, a city on a hill in the middle of darkness, whose the way that we live our lives proclaim or exhibit the excellencies of God through Christ. That's a compelling picture. That's a picture that's greater and wider than ourselves. That's a picture that's greater and wider than finding a group of people that I happen to like. Because sometimes excellencies are shown by being a part of a group of people that I don't naturally have an affinity with. But yet, through Christ, we exhibit a deep interconnectedness in life that transcends any natural explanation. It means finding a group of people that will challenge me in the way I live and treat my finances and the way I treat my wife and my employees or my coworkers that challenge me in that in such a way that I'm growing and exhibiting the excellencies, the beauty of God in the way that I live my life, in my everyday life. Our church, and our, this is a compelling picture that should excite us in our gatherings. How do we pray about how we gather on Sunday mornings and worship? Is it just like, hey, God, I need something from you today? Or is it just like, I want to get through this? Or, man, I'm hungry. Would he stop talking? Or is it, God, would you showcase your excellencies this morning when we gather? God, would you showcase your excellencies through our community group? Not just in that we have a good discussion over here on taco night, but would you help us exhibit in the way that we reach out to our neighbors and our neighborhoods around us and serve those who are far away from you and who are the least of these that it showcases and puts on display your excellencies. God, would you make us into a prototype Jesus community on mission, not just some place where people come and ride some rides and watch some shows and eat some churros. We have good coffee. That is not what I want us to be known for. I want us to be known for showcasing the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and to his marvelous light. That's what God has called 
you two as an individual, it's what he's called us to as a church, it's what gets me up out of bed in the morning, it's what gets me excited about the future for us, and it's what gets me on my knees praying that God would visit us in a powerful way here at Doxa and across the Grand Strand. So we'll end with these questions. How do you view the church? How do you view the church? Are you involved deeply enough in relationships that you are able to exhibit what it looks like to be a part of God's new family? How do you view your life? What, what, what do you view as the why for your life? What is the why for your life? And just be honest. This morning we're getting ready to have communion together. Be honest with yourself and the Lord and say, God, the why for my life is that I would get through the day and be able to put on my comfortable pants and watch Netflix. That's really the why for my life. The why for my life is that I would make it into this job or I have this amount in my finances or I would meet this person or this type of person and get married and have kids. Look, all those things are great things, but those are poor whys for life. God, I want to do all those things, but I want to do them in such a way that my life proclaims the excellencies of you who called me out of darkness from being a nobody into a somebody, who brought me from being outside, inside. Do you live life like you're a priest for those who are around you? You're not the one who made the sacrifice that's once done by Christ, but are you living in such a way that you're desperately praying, God, would you showcase you to the people around me who don't know you, and you're bringing them to him saying, God, would you save them and draw them and make them part of your family? Are we as a church, and are we as families, are we as individuals exhibiting a different way of viewing family, neighboring, career, education, and finance? Or are we living for some other purpose? Here's the cool news. Jesus is the firstborn son among many brothers and sisters. He is the one who created this new family. Jesus is the son, the great high priest who once for all made sacrifice and lives to make intercession for us. Jesus himself is the second Adam, the one who came and showcased what humanity should look like and could look like. And we can fulfill these the callings as a church to showcase the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and his marvelous light only by the power of Jesus Christ and only for his glory, not ours. And that just gives us great hope because I'll be honest with you, I'm pretty terrible at all these things. But in Christ, I can come to him and repent and live a life of repentance and pray to God, would you showcase your excellencies through me as I live a life as a part of a, your new family, a part of your royal priesthood, and a part of your new nation, your new culture. I'm gonna pray for us, and the band's gonna come up, we're gonna prepare for communion. There's gonna be two stations, one on each side here. You're gonna come up from the outside, take a cracker, dip it in the bread, you can come back, dip it in the, uh, the juice, and you can come back through the middle aisle. Uh, and as we do so, let's celebrate and remember Jesus Christ who was all those things for us, and maybe you need to do some business with God. Maybe you need to repent 
to him this morning about the way that you view your life. You'll find much grace there and you'll find power to live differently. And if you're not a believer, find somebody who invited you or come up to me or they'll, we'll have some people in the prayer area in a few minutes. Go to them and ask them, hey, hey, I want to become a Christian. I'm not sure that I am. Would you uh, help me this morning? We'll be glad to talk with you, pray with you. Uh, God does amazing things. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.